Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall, at the Spectator offices in London. Today I'm joined by Rahima Matmut. Rahima is the UK Director of the Uyghur Congress. She is the co-founder and executive director of the Stop the Uyghur Genocide Organization, as well as being a beautiful singer, uh, activist, translator, uh, author, writer, and um, someone I, I consider to be the embodiment of Uyghur um, culture and uh, one of the great spokespersons for the Uyghurs here in Europe and in the UK. Uh, Rahima, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. Thank you for that very kind introduction and thank you for having me. Of course. Um, so on the 24th of May, Adrian Zenz has released what has been called the Jingjiang Police Files. Now we'll get into that, but before speaking about that, I was wondering if you could maybe explain to listeners or watchers who don't know who the Uyghurs are, who are the Uyghurs? Well, Uyghurs are the Turkic-speaking people. We share more cultural simi similar culture and the language with Turkic people. The closest cousins are the Uzbeks. I often say that culturally we are far more closer to Istanbul uh, than Beijing. So our language is uh, Turkic. We believe in Islam and uh, we have our own very distinct, unique uh, culture, music, and Islamic tradition, and uh, so on. So it's very, we are very different from the majority Han Chinese people. In fact, there's no, there's no Chinese ethnicity that's part of the Uyghur makeup. It's a separate ethnicity as well as having a whole other tradition altogether. Yes, that's exactly, I think, the, <clears throat> the problem here. We are very different. Geographically, we always lived in uh, the nowadays what the China called Xinjiang, but we prefer to call it East Turkestan. So it's a land of Turkic people. Mm. Um, so we are geographically in the eastern side of Turkestan. So you can compare the Turkic people and the Chinese people, or you can compare a Turkish person to a Chinese. That is exactly the difference we have with the Chinese people. I see. So actually, I think it was in Mao annexed Xinjiang. The region was occupied during the Qing dynasty. Mm -hmm. But then we had two very brief independence. East Turkestan Republic in 1933, very short-lived, then 1944. The communist uh, invasion, or rather uh, its collaborative effort between the uh, Soviet Union and uh, Mao's China at that time, the Chinese Communist Party, soon after they declared the Chinese Communist Party being the ruler of China and uh, the so-called Xinjiang mm. uh, was annexed. So Xinjiang means new territory or new frontier. Although Chinese government often say that Xinjiang has been the inseparable part of China from historical time, as it goes back to two, three thousand years, but the truth is uh, it was called Xinjiang only after the during the Qing Dynasty it was occupied military mm -hmm. military occupation and uh, they, they renamed the region called Xinjiang. The name itself means it is a very new territory mm -hmm. uh, that was colonized by China. What, what's the significance for the? Uyghurs and uh, about this uh, report from Adrian Zenz? Well, since the uh, Chinese Communist government occupation in 1949, disaster never stopped, one massacre after another. Uh, since the rightist movement uh, started 1958, then Cultural Revolution, brief freedom we had in the 80s, then from early 90s, again, the crackdown, one crackdown after another. 
So we suffered a discrimination and a crackdowns over decades. But I have never expected the situation become this one of horror. Mm. So for Uyghurs, life became one of horror since 2016, after Chen Chenguo, the party secretary who ruled Tibet for five years, terrorizing Tibetans. Then uh, he was appointed to uh, party secretary in August 2016, and uh, they were already developing to completely transform the East Turkestan into a, one of the biggest police state. So experimenting their latest technology, high-tech surveillance and uh, um, genocidal policies. So Adrian Zensi's report, it just reconfirmed what has been happening. And I know those photos were taken during 2017 and 2018. They, that was a period when the mass arrests started. And you can see from the photos the terrified people, young and old. Hmm. Uh, I mean, since I saw the report and uh, looking through those photos, it's difficult to hold back mm. my tears mm. and especially I lost contact with my entire family, my relatives, my friends since early 2017. And the last time I spoke to my brother, my eldest brother was on the 3rd of January 2017. After two months I couldn't get hold of anyone. And when I asked him after he picked up the phone, I said, when no one is answering my phone call, he said, they did the right thing. Please leave us in God's hands. We leave you in God's hand too. And that's my last conversation. The conversation lasted only like two minutes after he picked up that phone. And I'm not the only one, majority of Uyghurs, Regardless, they are activists or not, uh, they, they received very similar messages uh, from their parents, from their siblings, said, please don't call us. We will reach out to you when things get better. Mm-hmm. And uh, having experienced a lot of crackdown, even when I was there, I left my country in 2000. You always there will normally a period of like one month, two months, sometimes three months, the crackdown, and then it get back to normal. And I didn't think this would last this long. It's five and a half year since since I spoke to my brother. And uh, since I came to this country in September 2000, I never went back because I decided to speak up and to tell the story about my people and the invasion, also this massacres, especially the Gulja massacre that I was in Gulja in my hometown in February 1997. Mm. And that is an event that, uh, that was an event uh, which I decided to leave. So you, you said that the things were escalating through the 90s after a period of peace in the 80s. And then, uh, what's this event in 1997? From the end of 1996, religious crackdown started in Rolja. So police raided uh, mosques and people's homes after tip-off to arrest mainly young uh, religious clerics. Mm. And uh, just like all Islamic community, uh, Muslim community, anyone who has good knowledge in Islam, they become kind of center of the community. So after the Cultural Revolution, after the religion was banned, up until Mao died in uh, 1976, 
Then uh, from 1978, the new leadership declared that religious freedom will be restored because that is under the Chinese constitution. So there was a revival of religion, culture, everything. Mm. So during 80s, we did have really great like novels, uh, hist- historians wrote historical novels, and uh, also revival of religion. A lot of Uyghurs went abroad uh, to study religion because for that 20-30 years period it was banned so basically you didn't have the the Uyghurs didn't have the opportunity to learn to study religion unlike my family because my father was very religious so he taught very kind of secretly but most of the families didn't have that kind of opportunities so in early 90s the Chinese government suddenly realized or suddenly decided that, you know, having this kind of revival of religion and culture is a threat to their power. So the crackdown started from early 90s. Then 1997 was a a kind of really, uh, I can say this was a, one of the biggest massacre that happened in the history of Holja city, Holja uh, where I come from. This. Uh, so after two months of crackdown, uh, hundreds of uh, religious clerics and uh, mostly very successful businessmen, many of these religious scholars or clerics, they are quite successful in their own uh, career as well, or either they are business uh, people or have different kind of a career which people look up to. So they obviously attract the crowd. So anyone who could attract the crowd, who could gather more people, that was considered to be the you know, uh, organizer of illegal gatherings or illegal Islamic uh, activities. So after hundreds of uh, these uh, young clerics were arrested, Uyghur youth decided to protest against this arbitrary detention. So on the 5th of February, 1997, Uyghur, mainly young male uh, from various different villages and towns, came to Holja city. The initial figure, it was about, initial number was about 200 and then other Uyghurs joined who didn't plan or anything after seeing the slogans he said religion is not a crime practicing religion is not a crime practicing meshrep is not a crime is another cultural century old cultural tradition was also banned at that time so practicing or meshrep gathering is not a crime release our religious leaders and uh, then this protest, the number of people became thousands, including some school children also joined. Uh, people, after closing their shop, they joined as well. In, initially, the police allowed the, 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 the march. They didn't do anything, but we know later they had already know this is going to happen. They prepared well well prepared. So after they came to the town hall to all the Uyghurs assembled at this one place, they deployed the military from n- neighboring county called Buyandai and uh, encircled the protesters and opened fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe over 100 died and then followed by mass arrest, four to 5,000. In fact, the the real number of you know the protesters not even that many but they wrongfully arrested a lot of youth uh, some streets you hardly can see any young male left and that was the holja massacre it was a turning point and is a, one of the really kind of horrible uh, scene that i have seen 
since the Tiananmen uh, massacre. It was uh, just uh, terrorizing. Uh, police raided houses coming at night to search if there anyone uh, who looked uh, like the person in the photos they had. Mm. And then later, after I came here in 2000, then the 2009 July 5th massacre happened in Urumqi. And uh, from the YouTube videos and other eyewitness accounts, I could relate that to the Hoja massacre. It was very, very similar. So uh, there's a couple of significant bits. I want to ask you about how you left, because actually that must be quite a story, seeing as I imagine it's near impossible now to leave the area. But the significance of this 1997 date is that the CCP narrative is that they are reacting to what they consider Islamic extremism. In fact, they they for a while denied that there were any camps and, and that, that slowly changed and now they're saying they're reacting to Islamic extremism and they'll cite that there's four to 5,000 Uyghurs who signed up for ISIS, that there are, uh, this, uh, I'll get the pronunciation wrong, Urunshi was uh, in 2009, they will say that around 200 Han Chinese were killed. They'll say in 2013, a Uyghur family drove car into Tiananmen Square killing two and then what is supposedly the Chinese 9-11 was in 2014 there was uh, the railway attack at the station where 31 were killed by Uyghur extremists and so in what context should I understand the extremist side of the... You know, um, so when you uh, just mentioned about ISIS for example we know there are a number of Uyghurs joined them, but it's extremely difficult to explain how these people ended up, you know, all the way from some villages then in uh, Turkey or in Syria. When you cannot travel from village to village freely. Yeah. So what is, how how would they have got there? It's trafficking, human trafficking. Because when you are in a kind of really desperate situation, like how women ended up being, you know, trafficked for sex or other things, not knowingly. This is exactly how it happened to Uyghur people. When you feel, when you are in danger, when you know that you cannot practice religion, you are at risk of being arrested and put in camps or in prison. You seek opportunity to to leave the country. And there are people out there also trying to use this situation against them to make money. Mm -hmm. So many people sold their houses, all the savings and paying the uh, these traffickers, Mm -hmm. the human traffickers. And then they ended up in wrong places, Mm -hmm. not knowingly. So this this is a kind of situation. And also about the Urumqi uh, 2009, uh, we call it massacre, they say unrest. The protests started also very peaceful, led by the Xinjiang University students after uh, some videos appeared in uh, on Youku, similar uh, like YouTube, that the Chinese people killing two Uyghur factory workers in Xiaoguan city in Guangdong province. That was really kind of brutal when you when you watch the way how they killed them and then they posted on on Yuku. So university students first petitioned that provincial government to hold those who killed these two factory workers accountable, but they didn't receive any reply. Then on the fifth of July, so the Uyghurs led by the by the university students, then many others who were very angry about what happened after seeing the, this video footage. It was also very peaceful protest, demanded the government to answer the question about how they're going to deal with these killings mm. and whether those Chinese who killed these uh, Uyghurs will be tried, held accountable. Instead of meeting the protesters, the leaders, Again, they deployed military and police, open fire. Many died. So the Chinese version of 200 died, it's 
their version of reporting. They never report how many people they killed. So because of this peaceful protest turned into riot, it's not because the Uyghurs wanted this to be a riot. Because this really unfair treatment against the peaceful protesters then led some Uyghurs just so outraged after seeing this mass arrest, dragging Uyghurs onto trucks, and uh, they disappeared, all, the, all this. We know uh, since 2009 that July 5th protests ha happened, thousands missing. Up until now, we don't know what happened to, the, to, to those people. And a very small minority of Uyghurs, and they just decided to revenge. Mm. And uh, that's how it happened. Mm. The, the Chinese version of they show you the, how they uh, turned over buses and the killing, killing, killing others. But you cannot see any footage of how they opened fire killing peaceful protesters and arresting uh, thousands and in like going into Uyghur neighborhood just indiscriminately arrest and taken away mm. many uh, many people this arrest lasted up until September uh, 2009 mm. and uh, um, so it was also a turning point so uh, after this the Chinese version of that the Uyghur killed 200 majority were Chinese. They uh, implemented the extrajudicial killing and extrajudicial arrest policy. So police had power to kill or arrest anyone they believe they are suspicious or they show some kind of threat. And uh, we, so it was the extreme turning point. Also, it feels like uh, this was a kind of pre-planned because we know uh, the, you know, uh, the historical, from the history, all these events. In order to completely like crack down or uh, make a decision to, uh, to kill or to arrest, there has to be some kind of excuses. Mm. So this was a very good excuse for the Chinese government that say that Uyghurs are potential terrorists, look, they are against the Chinese settlers in the region, using their propaganda, instigating, uh, instilling this hatred. Also the, the Chinese people and the relationship between the Uyghurs and the Chinese also became very, very uh, intense. And therefore, when you see now after millions of Uyghurs interned, you don't really hear a lot from the wider Chinese population condemning their governments because through over so many years, they have kind of brainwashed their own citizen, portraying Uyghurs as backwards, as thieves, as uh, terrorists, and uh, so the uh, majority Chinese people thinks that Uyghurs deserve this. So actually it's incorrect to even understand these uh, terrorist uh, or, or extremist events as Islamic uh, terrorist the extremist events. No, uh, firstly we don't know the whole story. As you say, the Chinese, are, uh, the CCP are only revealing a certain amount of the information. So we don't have a real picture of what happened. Uh, but also these would be, if they are an extremist fringe, it's the extremist fringe of a desperate people rather than uh, Muslim extremists. Uh, rather than, a it's not a religious movement. I believe so, um, because I know from the time I, you know, uh, 1997 after that Hulja massacre, that event, we know they just cracking down on any like peaceful religious clerics and uh, activities. It is extremely difficult for me to imagine that is a space can have any kind of extremism to grow and to to develop when you are under in such kind of uh, watchful eyes all the time. Rather, it's because of this kind of 
unfair treatment and uh, having had families uh, served in prison or disabled or being killed, massacred and uh, all these really kind of implanted hatred. Mm. And uh, so sometimes when you are really, really, really angry, the things can happen. Just like, you know, when you compare all this to, you know, the U.S., how people, you know, just massacre people, you don't call them terrorists. Mm. You know, sometimes you relate them to having some kind of psychological problem. Mm. And I believe my people might have developed those psychological problems as well. Imagine when you don't have anywhere to complain, to have any kind of support, comfort, and the state is the the biggest power against you. Mm. And you know, and also all these events, none of them were uh, independently verified. Uh, it's just the Chinese version of the events that very conveniently to link the Uyghur population to this kind of terrorism. Hmm. So in, in, in 1997, you decided to leave. And I think in Britain today, I think there's about 400 Uyghurs in the diaspora. So not many people have left or have been able to leave. How is it that you... Would it be fair to say you fled or you escaped? Or, or um, was it... That must, I'm assuming... That was an, a, a staggering journey. Well, at that time, I didn't have any other kind of record, like criminal record or any record of uh, being an activist or whatever, even though I attended a protest uh, during the 1989 students' democratic movement in Beijing. But because of the sheer number of people attended that, they couldn't ha- kind of have record of everyone. So I was quite lucky I I didn't have that record in my file. And also as being a teacher at the at, at the college, I although I have been quite active in kind of promoting the rights, but in a way that was very, very discreet. It wasn't like a I wasn't the like target at the time. So I managed to apply for passport. Uh, what I said was I want to do a master's degree and come, come back uh, to uh, serve the college better. Mm. And I just said I felt that I need to gain more knowledge in the field of chemistry and, uh, because I was teaching uh, chemistry and English at the college. And then they agreed, the university agreed. Uh, Then it took me about a year to apply for visa. And uh, so luckily, yeah, my visa was successful in, uh, my application for visa was successful in August 2000. Mm -hmm. And I traveled in September. So Um, you traveled from Jingjiang, presumably. Yeah, I traveled from Urumqi, uh, from <laughs> from my home, uh, from the place where I worked, Maitag, uh, by train to Urumqi, then from Urumqi to Beijing, forty-eight hours journey, I think. <laughs> then from Beijing to uh, on, uh, to on Manchester. A car? Uh, no, uh, no, no, no. On train. Train, yeah. yes, train, train journey. Then from Beijing to Manchester via Istanbul. So I traveled alone. I know there is no way I can get visa for my family. Then two years later, luckily, uh, my son and his father, uh, my ex-husband, they successfully uh, obtained the visa to visit me. So you went to Manchester, University in Manchester? No, a University of Central Lancashire. Okay. So the the yeah, when I landed in in Manchester. So you do, you're doing a masters in chemistry. No, a masters in uh, environmental management. 
So this okay. is also related to chemistry, environmental waste management. So they, they required a degree uh, in chemistry um, related courses. So because my background is petrochemical engineering, mm. and that's why they I, I was accepted to, to do that degree. In, but you didn't the, you didn't have intention of going back. No. No. That was a kind of that was the only way available that for me to leave. That was the only kind of not easy, but there's no any other option. Especially at that time, I didn't know any illegal routes, or you could you could pay and uh, can travel illegally out of the country. But still, I believe God had the plan for me, and I I, I, I managed. I managed. And how did how did your son and ex husband then arrive? I left my son when he was five. We reunited when he was seven, uh-huh. and uh, it's hard. It, it's it was hard. So, whenever I speak to these women, a lot of them in Turkey who cut off from their children, they left behind some three, four children since two thousand seven. I feel very, very sad. I cannot imagine a mother, you know, three, four young children taken away by the state and not allowing you to know where they are. What the state are taking them away. Yeah, I hadn't. I hadn't. Yeah, children separa- separation of children. Anyone who. So what happened was after the parents or one of the parents taken away to camps they also took the children away to children's camps chinese government say that it's a boarding school they're providing the best education but it's a kind of children's transformation school so that these children grow up completely isolated from their own culture, the language, and the religion. Mm. So we know uh, from the kind of rough estimate, 500,000, but we believe the figure be very, very high. Because if you have million or up to three million people, and these cho- their children, they left behind, initially they were allowed to have other family members to look after them, and then later, they were all sent to these centers and they are not allowed to go out from the, from school without permission. So it's almost like children's internment camps as well. Wow. So you can see that uh, from the photos, you know, that was leaked, there are children as well. Really? There's a one young, young girl. She looked maybe about 10, 11, had this pink t-shirt and the jacket is obviously it's adult, someone else's jacket, is like adult's jacket. Mm. And you can see that the hair was shaved. And uh, mm. it's one of, one of the photos, it really upset me. Mm. I remember the first, the first I'd come across uh, and, and uh, Heard of what was going on in Jingjiang was the photo, and, or the, it was the drone footage in 2018 of the uh, shaven-headed or shaven heads of uh, these prisoners with black blindfolds on, uh, s- sat with their arms behind their folded behind their backs and cross-legged outside a train station, and it you you see that and immediately, as a European, you immediately think of the death camps of the 19. 19- Forties, uh, and and in fact, it is the largest internment of an ethnic group since in the world since since then. But there is surprisingly little footage. There's 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 a lot of testimonies, and I've I've heard some of them, even at the uh, Uyghur Tribunal, which was in November December uh, 2021 last year. There were some very moving testimonies of of what's going on. There's accusations of 
rape, of organ harvesting. Uh, it's completely um, devastating, but what, the information that's coming through, considering the scale on which it's purported to be going on, is, is quite small. And I, I suppose that's why the Zen's uh, report that's been released is, is really more evidence of the, the grand scale of things. Yeah, these kind of horrors, especially when it is happening behind the closed doors, it's more horrible, more scary. Why the Chinese government ban Uyghurs speak to their family abroad? Why would my brother tell me, leave us in God's hands, when they often worried about my health? because I survived cancer in 2013. And I kept very close contact with everyone because they always worried, Mm. you know, whether cancer would come back, whether I will fall ill again. And then just completely cut off. If the consequence is not that severe, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't really cut off from me. So, just so you can imagine, you know, this, what is happening behind this completely blocked from the view, the places. Just like the Holocaust, mm. you didn't know until it was liberated. Mm. And we will know only the truth if the CCP regime fell. Mm. Only when there is a an independent, completely different government or uh, you know organizations can really go there, have this unfettered access to r- record what what has happened. We haven't even got to speak about your art and your uh, singing. I had the great pleasure of seeing you perform. Uh, at St. Bartholomew the Greats in November in London and it was uh, an, an evening of Uyghur, Uyghur music, food, art and you performed some traditional songs and some newer songs. Were you brought up singing? Is, uh, were these songs part of your upbringing or is this something that you've appreciated now being away from your home? Uh, well, you, you can see my, my face changes. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we talk about art, music, or poetry, you know, I completely kind of shift from this very sad, the human rights situation, genocide, and whatever. I'm in a completely different planet, in a different world. So, uh, yeah, music is, for me, it's an escape from this really horrible situation. Mm. Always been. I... I was very, very lucky born into a family of musicians. So my mother's side from my great grandfathers, they were quite known musicians in uh, Rolja. And uh, so from the time that I remember was my mother's beautiful singing from from lullaby to the uh, other folk songs. And my mom had very beautiful voice and she played dutar as well. What's a dutar? Dutar is a two string, du is two uh-huh. and tar is, is a Persian. Oh, a dutar. So tar, yeah, dutar okay. is two tar. <laughs> so they're kind of simple instrument that a lot, like women play a lot. And uh, for Uyghur people, when you, I don't know now, but when the time I grow up, where whenever you go to anyone's home, you have like a and their ball. Just even if they didn't know how to play, it's just like if you have a musician come to the house, at least you have the duta that you can you can offer them to play to to play. Uh, at my uh, family home, uh, we had duta, tambour, and the violin. What's a tambour? Tambour is a, a is a another string instrument. It's far more complicated, a bit like a saz and. Uh, uh, so tambour is like a most important, one of the most important instruments for the Gulja folk songs. So you see tambour a lot in Gulja, where I come from, and rubab, 
uh, the one that uh, play like this is a it's a similar string instrument but sounds slightly different a rhubarb it's sounds a, like a banjo right? yeah yeah rhubarb is very, uh, is common in the southern part of east turkestan okay and the tambour is very common in the northern part of of east turkestan because the folk songs the ranges are very different like a scottish folk song mm. and when you hear the irish folk song very different of so the the um, gulja folk song kashgar folk songs kucha folk song turpa very very different it has a very its own different style although all you know uh, uyghur but very different style So I um uh, I I always say that I was very lucky lucky person to be born in this very large also religious I uh, you know my father was uh, very religious and he read you know his recitation of Quran was something that I cannot compare mm-hmm. anywhere uh, maybe because he, you know the the Uh, as a child the first time i heard from him so all often woke up in the morning from his recitation of quran would it be a song yeah quran you know that uh, i don't know if you if if you uh, ever listened to like a uh, imams or the qari's recite mm. uh, quran is is very much like a song is absolutely beautiful and the recitation of 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 quran then during the day listening my mother while doing housework just uh, uh, quietly singing and then whenever we had any family gatherings or even like if my uh, uncle's family came to uh, visit my mom my my family and my both my two uncles they were really great musicians and singers there will be like three four people would be one would be playing duta another playing tambour and another playing violin and then that they would be singing so like in summer we they would like play under the uh, wine then we will have like neighbors would just sit on the wall <laughs> on to I'm listen watching, and yeah. then my mom would say just come in come in you know you don't have to sit over there you can come and then it be just become like a big party so i grew up in that uh, that kind of environment uh, we lived in the village until i was 10 so there was a beautiful village life we had a very big house apple orchards and uh, uh, a lot of this kind of musical spontaneous kind of musical events happened at home or in orchards on this kind of open spaces i grew up just following them following my brothers and singing and i remember when i was little uh, my brothers friends when they passed the street they often came and said rahima rahima uh, please please sing us a song and uh, i'd say no and then they would say oh, i'm going to give you a sweet you know <laughs> <laughs> kind of bribe me and i would just stand there and sing and i would try to get the sweet well uh, uh, we now have video of one of the songs from st bartholomew the great um it's a song called tarim now tarim or the tarim network is the name of your son zaf's organization and zaf's become a friend of mine and actually i was just reminded uh, before this interview that Zaf and I went to a comedy show in London uh, by our engineer Sam Holmes here and uh, it was at the it was the Angel Comedy Club I think he's a very courageous guy because at one point in the set Sam uh, called out to the crowd he said are there any right wingers here and your son Zaf put his hand up and went oh and he's the only one in the room <laughs> now to admit To, to admit being conservative or right wing in in a com- in comedy circles is borderline suicidal <laughs> so he showed real courage there and he's certainly a man who doesn't give a you know doesn't he doesn't care he's he's um very impressive guy and he has this charity Tarim network which supports promoting uh, or keeping Uyghur culture alive uh, for the youth so i encourage listeners to go check them out but maybe you can tell us about this song Tarim that we're about to listen to. 
Okay, thank you. Um, Tarim, we have Tarim Basin in the south and the Tarim River. So Tarim, um, the river we always call is a cradle of the Uyghur civilization. So it's a very important part of the Uyghur land, the East Turkestan. Tarim also associates uh, with the one of the most notorious labor camps that was set up during the Cultural Revolution. It still exists, still have prisoners there and all the forced labor, picking cotton, and it's still ongoing. So the song Tarim is, uh, was written during the Cultural Revolution when people were arrested, just like now, were arrested in masses and taken to Tarim labor camp. So the song says that I am going to Tarim and a farewell to all my loved ones, all that we grow up together. And if you come to Tarim, I will embroider you with flowers. Tarim is a desert. The, the, no, the Tarim labor camp where they are you know, the, these Uyghurs were taken at that time. It's not the place where you can have flowers, or, but it's a kind of symbolic. It's a way to, in a metaphor, to stay positive. So even in the desert, even uh, if I am in the camp in the labor camps i will still make sure if you visit me and i will embroider you with flowers and uh, when you listen to the song you can you feel like sometimes you want to cry mm. because it really shows that emotion that pain and uh, also is a, is a song that is really suitable to sing in this kind of open field and so when I sing Tarim, uh, strangely, when I close my eyes, I see those cotton fields, like you cannot see the end mm. and uh, the desert and then the, these prisoners. Rahima Mahmoud, thank you so much for your time and for sharing. Um, it's just been very moving and, and fascinating. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.